0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 16th of March, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and our very own nursing
1: correspondent, Debbie Evans. Uh, So we'll get straight on here with, uh, we'll hear the two uh, negotiators for the uh, Ukraine peace deal, apparently. Uh, So... uh, the negotiations have been going on. And the question is, how well are they doing? Well, uh, the Russians uh, are saying that they're going quite well, that they're discussing the the neutrality of uh, of Ukraine. Um, similar status to Sweden and Austria is uh, is what the suggestion is. So on the left there, we've got uh, Vladimir Medinsky. Uh, and he said, uh, we need a peaceful, free, independent Ukraine, neutral, not a member of uh, military blocs, not a member of NATO. Uh, And then on the right is his uh, Ukrainian counterpart, uh, and uh, I can't pronounce his name. Alex, I'm not sure whether you uh, know his name off the top of your head. Uh,
2: Not off the top of my head, I'm afraid, but all Ukrainians have unpronounceable names.
1: Yeah, okay. Thank you for that. Uh, Well, let's look and see what Sergei Lavrov uh, is saying. Neutrality is being seriously discussed. It would be an acceptable compromise. So the question is, is it being seriously discussed, Uh, the Ukrainians being a little cooler on it than the Russians are, at least? Uh, but Alex, my question to you is: uh, If if there is progress being made on negotiations, does this make this then the uh, possibly the most dangerous moment uh, in the sense that any uh, false flag, if we can use that phrase, uh, at this point would be uh, fatal perhaps to the to the negotiations?
2: Well, it's definitely the most dangerous moment for President Zelensky. Uh, because if he, as the West is t- trying to get him to do, leaves, there will be a power vacuum and there will be a palace coup in his absence. If, however, he stays in situ and concedes constitutional neutrality, which is already in the Ukrainian constitution that they shouldn't join NATO, and if he concedes the loss of Crimea and maybe some of the East, uh, then he's likely to get slotted by his own neo Nazis. And I know that later in the news we'll be uh, talking about that in some detail because we are often told uh, we are. Uh, presenting this far too one-sidedly but that is the real risk and that's why the neo-nazis small as they are in support base didn't even bother to contest the presidential election either after the coup in 2014 or in 2019 when poroshenko handed over to zelensky because they knew perfectly well that they would be able to hold a gun to his back Uh,
1: indeed now um, you've got a couple of uh, maps here alex uh, first of all uh, well which is which Uh, it's hard to say Uh, one shows uh, russian occupation of Ukraine but is this the russian occupation of ukraine is this an accurate map
2: well we better split the difference this is data from the institute for the study of war which if uh, memory serves is at king's college london and uh, has a checkered past uh, it presents itself as a, as a great center of expertise on these things and this graphic has been made up from that data by al jazeera um but what the, the, the we we should probably better say that The the, the truth of what's going on on the ground is somewhere between this map and the one we're about to show you. In this, shall we say, Western, or in this case, uh, Gulf-sponsored presentation of the truth, you have a bit more differentiation in colour. So you've got the actual line of contact, you've got the Donbass itself, you've got in half of Donetsk and half of Lugansk, you've got the actual territory controlled by the People's Republics with the yellow line around them uh, and pockets outside that. You've got some salience developing in the north around Chernihiv down to Kharkiv. Um, but that's it there's, there's, there's patchy Russian control and Kiev is not quite surrounded but if you tap that again we will see uh, and people following this on Telegram for example will know that these are much shared map series this is produced obviously uh, by a Russian source and we'll get accused of all kinds of things even by showing this map but in this version it's uh, it's presented by Ridovka and what you can see there is much more of a World War two scenario with bulging salience in fact the the kettle has now been closed uh, actually the The far east of the country had the large uh, concentration of regular Ukrainian MOD forces. Mariupol in the southeast is now an embattled pocket that might not last very long. And horrendous things are going on there, as we know. Uh, not least the refusal to let civilians leave but in the russian version uh, of things kiev is pretty much surrounded transnistria in the southwest uh, of the country bordering moldova uh, is a pro-russian territory which in this version is spreading out to meet up with russian troops around mikolaev and odessa so uh you know it's 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 a slow death or even a sudden death that's being forecast if you take this map seriously for most of the ukrainian mod forces like every claim and counterclaim here Uh, It's very difficult to see how much territory is truly and securely held by the Russian forces or indeed whether that's their main aim. But there are varying and diverging claims now between the West and Russia as to the just the state of affairs on the ground.
1: Okay, so so Alex, just if you could just give us a little bit of clarification. You said a second ago uh, that uh, civilians are not being allowed to leave Mariupol. Uh, What did you, who, which, who is stopping them leaving? Just uh, give us that clarification if you could.
2: Uh, From much footage and reportage, it is safe uh, to say, uh, not just fog of war, but safe to say that when civilians uh, seek to leave the very large city of Mariupol, it's got hundreds of thousands of people, they are stopped either routinely or randomly at checkpoints on the edge of the built-up area by, you could call them irregulars or you could call them regular Ukrainian servicemen who happen to have a dual loyalty to uh, nationalist groupings. Should we put it that way? This is the whole fuzziness in, in the Ukraine. How many of these guys have got double hats? Uh, but anyway, uh, shall we say the more enthusiastic verging on fanatic members of the Ukrainian armed forces at the edge of the city, uh, facing a Russian siege on all sides apart from the sea, including the sea now, are telling civilians. And there's been footage of, of, uh, of women and the elderly uh, asking to leave. And, and this happens to them saying, no, you are not allowed out.
1: Yeah. OK, thank you for that. Do you have some thoughts?
0: Well, the only thing I was going to add, of course, is that the Western media are really saying, um, it's quite a regular report that the Russians are incompetent in what they're doing in a military sense, but the facts of the matter are, historically at least, it's it's only the Russians and the Germans that have got experience of fighting on countrywide scale. And so even World War II in the West was nothing compared to the war on the Eastern Front, and I think this is one of the things where BBC, in particular, is um, is, is not giving the public any idea of the true scale of what's happening.
1: Uh, so, what else is the BBC not giving people uh, any idea of the scale of? Let's uh, put Liz. Trust the lovely Liz on screen. Uh, over one thousand individuals in and uh, individuals and entities sanctioned now, apparently, according to the Foreign Office. And Liz Truss saying we are going further and faster than ever and hitting those closest to Putin from major oligarchs to his prime minister and the propagandists who peddle his lies and disinformation. Uh, so she's announced 370 more Russian and Belarusian sanctions yesterday. Uh, and that means by the end of yesterday, the UK will have designated over 1000 individuals and entities uh, since the invasion. Under Russia's sanctions regime, that's according to the British government. That's those are their words. Uh, so yesterday's historic sanctions, they said, include more Russian oligarchs and their family members, Putin's political allies and propagandists. Uh, the vast majority of the designations are made possible under the Economic Crime and Transparency, sorry, Economic Crime (brackets) Transparency and Enforcement Act, uh, which has had royal assent. Have you heard of it? So indeed, exactly, silence from Brian. Uh, So we haven't heard of it, why not? Because the BBC hasn't mentioned it as far as I know. But anyway, here it is, Uh, parliamentary bills. It began its progress through Parliament on the 1st of March this year. Uh, And here we are on the 16th of March and it's already had uh, royal assent. Uh, So I'm not sure how much time it had for debate. Um, So as they say, the vast majority of the designations, as they're calling it, were made possible under the Economic Crime Brackets Transparency and Enforcement Act which has had royal assent. Uh, This has given the government new powers to act in the public interest, they claim, uh, and immediately designate individuals and entities under an urgent procedure uh, while evidence is gathered to sanction them under our own standard procedure. So Alex, uh, this piece of legislation then um, allows the British government uh, to impose sanctions before any evidence is gathered while they're gathering evidence. Um, Where does that leave the constitution?
2: In the gutter, along with natural law and international law, all of which say in terms from their various philosophical angles, you can't punish people for things they haven't yet been proven to do. You know, Regardless of which legal system you're operating under and whether it's civil or criminal uh, or any other branch of law, you can't do that. Uh, that's making yourself judge, jury and executioner. Uh, But it's not the only piece of of hushed up legislation because there's also a War Powers Bill going through Parliament, which for the first time in the uh, in the history of any common law country would statutorily declare that the executive can declare war uh, over the head of Parliament if the executive thinks it's the right and fair thing to do.
1: Um, And bearing in mind, Alex, that the the, uh, British military, the heads of the British military have said that, you know, effectively, uh, there is no safety at home anymore. Uh, keeping that in mind, how, how uh, thin is the page between this type of legislation being applied abroad and perhaps us seeing similar at home? Well,
2: just again with my old GCHQ uh, experience to mind, even back in the mid 2000s, uh, people seamlessly and in some cases gleefully in the relevant parts of GCHQ, transferred their existing skill sets from hunting terrorists abroad, as they were presented, to hunting domestic extremists. And I know that the same thing was going on in all the Five Eyes countries at the same time, particularly with the younger officers. Now we're a generation almost on from that. Certainly some of the younger officers in the various agencies and services in the Five Eyes countries have grown up in the 9-11 era and know no other. So they will rapaciously uh, do as they're told and not see any Fundamental philosophical difference. But it's older than that because Gordon Welchman, the wartime GCHQ boffin, wrote in the suppressed final chapter of his memoirs, the Hut Six story in 1982, that as of the time of writing, uh, the uh, corporations that supply NSA, uh, like MITRE, regard the enemy as being in the midst of the domestic population. And that's where future high tech and uh, uh, targeted uh, responses were going to be focusing on.
1: Yes. Okay, thank you for that. So uh, then let's put this one up 35% tariff on all imports from uh, Russia and uh, Belarus. And alongside that, they have and the government has announced it's no longer going to issue any new guarantee loan or insurance for exports to Russia from the UK to Russia and Belarus. Uh, and this will uh, this follows the, the UK's decision to announce a ban on exports to Russia of high end luxury goods, uh, while hitting hundreds of key products and new tariffs That represent a 35% point hike, uh, percentage point hike on uh, current rates. So there we go. But in the meantime, of course, we're bringing uh, many Ukrainians into the country. Apparently, it has already begun. uh, Over 100,000. I think the number is up to around 120,000 expressions of interest in the Homes for Ukraine scheme, and we're already starting to see mainstream media articles uh, highlighting the wonderful people that are bringing. Uh, are throwing their doors open to re- Ukrainian refugees,
0: and um, we I've got to say it again, we have no idea who these people are, what what their political allegiance is, what their backgrounds. We are just told that these are people that we should take into our homes, but no no checks on who they are.
1: Uh, indeed, and of course, uh, we saw the headlines last week uh, of you know the, how brilliant and how wonderful it was that the UK was allowing Ukrainian immigrants to bring their pets with them. Uh, and so now the British taxpayer is going to be paying for any quarantine uh, requirements for those uh, animals. Um, and uh, uh, and of course, uh, we had announced yesterday that the government will remove any uh, remaining restrictions on uh, people flying into or entering the UK with respect to COVID-19. Uh, so no need for tests, no need for uh, anybody that uh, doesn't has or is of indeterminate vaccination status. Uh, to take any kinds of tests when they're coming into the country, Uh, all done just in time for um, for this. Yeah, that's
0: all brushed under the carpet. Um,
1: Okay, let's let's bring this uh, on screen then. So Alex uh, hinted at this earlier on, uh, but uh, this was a message we received uh, today. Uh, Your scaremongering about the group right sector is embarrassing. No mention of the neo-Nazis that operate in Russia. UK column has become the inverse of MSM, that's mainstream media, and is guilty of selective journalism. No attempt at exploring both sides. You've lost a lot of credibility with your pro-Putin stance. I look forward to an anti-Russian report from uh, UKC, but I won't hold my breath. Well, we're not here to report uh, on Russia as such in in that sense, but we're here to uh, report on what our governments are doing and so on. But let's just uh, deal with this uh, neo-Nazi issue uh, first and foremost. Uh, because another piece of video has uh, has come up. Uh, And uh, before we we will just put the still of it up first before I ask Alex to to take over here. Um, But basically, just to get an understanding of what's going on in Ukraine, there are four main uh, media groups, uh, Starlight Media. uh, And the the next one on my list here is one plus one media, we've got Intermedia, and then we've got uh, uh, media group Ukraine, which owns this channel here 24 uh, news 24 uh, and alex uh, this piece of video has come to light uh, and it's pretty despicable
2: it is um, while you keep that still on screen just to uh complete the uh, the picture, One Plus One Media is owned by Kolomoysky, who is widely uh, thought to be this, the, the man steering the current president, Zelensky. And the owner of this Ukraine 24 channel, the last of the four media conglomerates you mentioned, uh, is variously claimed to be the even bigger oligarch, um, uh, Rinat Akhmetov, a Crimean Tatar who is of you know varying loyalties between Russia and the West, or be, to be uh, allegedly controlled by the mayor of Lvov through the mayor's husband. Now, at this point in the, in the rolling silent footage, you've seen Adolf Eichmann come on screen. And that is the clue to me that this is not just an outburst, right? Because if you were to listen to the Ukrainian audio or to listen to subtitled audio, you would see or uh, you would hear this very young man sniffling because he's just lost a friend in the war. And uh, you would see the, um, uh, the no the patriotic banner at the top right. We will overcome with the Ukrainian flag fluttering. Um, you might not notice that this is sober daytime TV at quarter to ten in the morning local time. You might not notice that it's a fully scripted dialogue because Eichmann came on screen right at the uh, at the moment when Eichmann's name is first mentioned by the particularly young news anchor uh, involved. Now, uh, what is going on here? I'm going to have to do a full reading in a moment for you. But the presenter involved is, he's only just turned 24. His name is Fakhruddin Sharafmal. And uh, he's, to my understanding, at least a second generation immigrant to Western Ukraine. Um, I don't know whether it's an Afghan or a, a Persian father that he has but uh, one of the two i think and there are quite a few afghans who came to ukraine in the years after the uh, the collapse of the soviet union so that i might not be far of the mark here but i don't quote me on that that's just uh, a, a stab at what's going on but he's been brought up in the nationalist era in western ukraine and um, and why on earth is he talking about adolf eichmann at quarter to 10 in the morning we'd better go on to read uh, the the script and uh, of the several uh, translations which have been doing the round on social media. And I've checked them all against the original Ukrainian. This one is the most business like, uh, almost two word for word translation that doesn't even um, give any concessions to uh, English idiom. So, this is 100% accurate, stone cold translation uh, of what this journalist was saying on uh, national Ukrainian television uh, at, at a course, to 10 in the morning. And as I say, the beneficial owner may be Akhmetov the oligarch, maybe the mayor of Lvov's husband, we don't know, Uh, but whoever said it, uh, this is pretty awful. Perhaps you might like to read this out, Mike.
1: Yeah, it says, uh, I know that as a journalist, I have to be objective. I have to be balanced in order to report information to you with a cold heart. But to tell you the truth, it's very hard to hold on now, especially at a time like this. And since we're called Nazis, fascists, and so on in Russia, I will allow myself to quote Adolf Eichmann, who said that in order to destroy a nation, you must destroy, first of all, children. Uh, Because if you kill their parents, the children will grow up and take revenge. By killing children, uh, they will never grow up and the nation will disappear. The armed forces of Ukraine cannot kill Russian children because it's forbidden by the rules of war and it's prohibited by various conventions, including the Geneva Convention, but I'm not from the armed forces of Ukraine. And when I get the chance to take out the Russians, I will definitely do it. Since you call me a Nazi, uh, I chance to take out the Russians, I will, oh, sorry, that's sorry, that was just a, a duplication there, since you call me a Nazi, I adhere to the doctrine of Adolf Eichmann, and I will do everything in my top power to ensure that you and your children never live on this earth, so that you can feel what it is like when innocent children, civilians die, so that you can feel all the pain and suffering when you say we didn't start the war, it was Putin, uh, we didn't want this war, we didn't want it either, but you uh, have to understand that it's about the victory of the Ukrainian people, not about peace. We need victory. And we, if we have to slaughter all your families to do it, I will be one of the first to do it. Glory to the nation uh, and hope that there will never be such a nation as Russia and the Russians on this earth again, uh, because they're just scum who are destroying this land. If the Ukrainians have the opportunity, which they're basically doing right now, to destroy, to slaughter, to kill, to strangle the Muscovites, and I hope that everyone contributes and whacks at least one muscle.
2: Moscow is a Western Ukrainian derogatory term for anyone who is overheard speaking Russian, even if they're foreigners who can only communicate with Ukrainians in Russian, they're often derided as Moscow. So if you speak Russian, uh, and this uh, explicitly includes children now, you are, to this man, a legitimate target. Uh, The head of of Crimea, of course, now a constituent entity of Russia de facto, has in response said, we will hunt down this dog and destroy him. Uh, the, The outrage is off the charts. Uh, that he's, uh, he's got away with saying this. In this particular case, there's no evidence of BBC or other Western training of this man. I'm not saying that hasn't happened, but we haven't seen it in this case. Uh, obviously, we don't want to participate in the doxing that is the making public of the of the details of this man. But a matter of public record on the next slide is at least his full name in um, the, U- the Ukrainian variant is uh, Fakhrodin uh, Muhtadinovich Sharafmal. It is claimed by certain sources, that this is him just before he turned twenty, uh, in a, a, a dormant social media account on Kontaktje in 2017, looking very much like a you know a typical 19-year-old with his interests in satire and and men's fashion and uh, and humor, uh, looks fairly similar. Not that I'm an expert in in facial uh, comparisons, but there you are. He's he's somehow managed to get himself at the helm of this this breakfast show, and I completely understand. He's traumatized by having lost a mate, if that's what happened the the day before. It it appears this was given on Sunday morning uh, because he said it was day 15 of the war. Uh, But really that the producer didn't stop him is is quite mind boggling. Uh, In the middle of that rant, uh, Sharaf Mal said uh, it's a shame that the armed forces of the Ukraine have to conform with the Geneva Convention and thus not target children. Uh, Actually, Ukraine hasn't declared war unless I'm very much mistaken, still hasn't declared war on Russia, and therefore not even their regular armed forces, arguably in their own estimation, are bound by the conventions, uh, let alone the irregulars that bleed in and out of the Ukrainian MOD as required. This isn't a new phenomenon. On this slide, and you'll find where to go on uh, YouTube to see this, Bogdan Butkevich is speaking uh, on YouTube on the 1st of August, 2014, so a matter of months after the Maidan revolution. And uh, here, we've got accurate uh, English subtitles here of what he's saying. Uh, the the, the uh, subtitles below that are Russian, but he's actually speaking Ukrainian, um, on Hromarske uh, television in 2014. Um, and during this clip, he uh, describes the, the people of the Donbass, one and a half million of them, uh, as superfluous to requirements. Um, he uses um, uh, the word, uh, Ukrainian words, nepotrevni, meaning useless people. And, uh, and various others, zaimi, meaning surplus to requirements or superfluous. And at the end of the clip, and I really had to listen hard to because I wasn't expecting it to be this blatant. He says in the Ukrainian original that what we need to do with these people, and he says, sorry, that if this sounds f- harsh, that we need to, v- or, uh, which people who read Russian will see on screen here is translated, Ubych. I did a double and triple take and before I could actually register that he was saying these people have to, we have to kill or its an impersonal statement, it is necessary simply to kill these people. It's, it's gone past the cartoon level of Rwanda uh, incitement of genocide with the media because there at least euphemisms were used in French language broadcasting in Rwanda, like uh, as they were in the Third Reich, of course, uh, get rid of these people or whatever. He's simply saying kill them. Tap this again, and you will see that uh, in the months leading up to this statement, so uh, the winter of 2013 to 14 is when the Maidan revolution was brewing, you will see that in Ukrainian Hryvnia, which is about uh, 50 to the pound at the moment, uh, the Dutch embassy provided just shy of 800,000 in financial support uh, in the months before this happened to that television channel, the US Embassy, about half that. So in total, roughly uh, sort of the, the mid tens of thousands of pounds or dollars or euros was supplied and the US Embassy perhaps just under 10,000. Um, that, that's where they got their money from. Romatske is one of the three channels which suddenly popped up in the, uh, in the brew that was going on before the Maidan revolution. Uh, the others were Spino and Espresso all of which were saying the right thing from the Western point of view and therefore NGOs and indeed the, the usual Anglo-Saxon and Dutch governments, just as in Syria, uh, provided them with the readies. And this is what you, got, you, you ended up with. Journalists calling on national television channels for the murder of Russian speakers. Uh, but Budkevich in that 2014 clip went further and said, uh, I'll paraphrase here, but I'm accurately paraphrasing, they need to be cleared off the land because for the Ukraine to be a valid state, we need to exploit what's under their feet hydrocarbon resources they themselves aren't needed yeah so this is not just a, a fringe i know we can't take more time on this segment for this news but i could go on you know there is no comparison between neo-Nazis in Russia and neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And without cheerleading for Putin, I have to point out that uh, last time I was on, you pointed out uh, that a Putin speech for Women's Day on the 8th of March had been suppressed in Britain, at least on the day itself. In that speech itself, Putin told the women who were around the table with him, yes, we frankly do have a problem with neo-Nazis in Russia, but unlike Ukraine, we don't have them in government. And indeed, I think you're about to mention the unheard interview with Freddie Sayers. It comes out in part of that interview, which you're about to mention, um, that there is uh, an exiled Russian neo-Nazi element in eastern Ukraine, which is being sheltered by uh, these militias in Ukraine, which are very much embedded with the Ukrainian government and uh, regular military. And that these Russian neo-Nazis who would really like to assassinate Putin and replace him uh, are given uh, shelter right there in Kiev in a Ukrainian government provided office or the Azov Battalion, and if you go upstairs, there's a bookshop where the Russian emigre uh, or exiled neo Nazis have their bookshop. So learn some more facts before just uh, just knee jerk saying that we're being uh, not being even handed here. There's no comparison between the state of neo Nazism in the Ukraine and in, in any other neighbouring country.
1: Right, and uh, and you know the question is uh, why is uh, News Twenty Four or Ukraine Twenty Four rather allowed to do this? Well, let's put this uh, uh, Al Jazeera article up in a risky move, this is from uh, 2018, I think it was, uh, in a risky move, Ukraine's president bans pro-Russian media. So basically, Zelensky closed down opposition media in Ukraine at that stage, uh, this was 2019, perhaps. And and uh, uh, and then, of course, then Ukraine 24, which is part of Media Group Ukraine. Uh, and as you say, that was founded, uh, at least Media Group Ukraine was uh, uh, founded and owned by uh, uh, Renat uh, Akhmatov. Um, so you know that this this outlet is allowed to to push out content like that. Um, now uh, Alex has mentioned this. Here is uh, Unheard uh, pushed out this documentary or interview yesterday. Uh, an investigation: the truth about neo Nazis in Ukraine. It's on YouTube on the Unheard YouTube channel. I absolutely recommend uh, that people go and have a look at this. Um, I mean, uh, there there there's plenty of imagery to show what they're talking about it's not just the uk column that's talking about this stuff uh, but i particularly wanted to highlight this still from from the uh, uh from the video because um, here we have british uh servicemen uh, training as of brigade uh, and that what is that a javelin there brian uh, we think perhaps
0: it's an anti-tank rocket yeah or anti-tank weapon Impossible. So this is this
1: yeah. a serious training session going on. And you can see the, the guy on the right hand side there with the Azov uh, logo on his arm. So Alex, uh, what, what were your thoughts just briefly on on this, uh, on this uh, uh, report from, uh, from Unheard?
2: It goes where no other British journalists have dared to go. And Freddie Sayers, who to my mind is monumentally better as an interviewer than, than most of the other offerings on British semi-mainstream channels does bookend his remarks rather tentatively with, we don't want to sucker Russian propaganda. So he's enunciating rather more bravely than others why nobody else is going here. But there's a, there's a spectrum of what you can say about this, but the photo reportage is out there. There's plenty of evidence of British uh, troops, in some cases red berries, I presume they are paras if this is genuine, uh, in, in the field doing anti-tank training or anti-aircraft training uh, with men who have got the Wolf's angle tattoos and the like. Uh, the bottom line, without being too partisan either way, is uh, this Azov regiment and the cluster of other people around it were irregulars. They knew they had the whip hand, although they were an 8% minority of the pro-Western protesters in 2014. You pr- played the Yefan Karas clip on the 4th of March making that point. Um, they knew that. They effectively have uh, you know, said, we'll, we'll be very useful to you in your, in your nationalist struggle, oh, Ukraine, Ukrainian state against Russia. But if you even dream about making any compromises, we will replace you. That's the level they've got to. And since this war has started, very much like in the Middle East for 40, 50 years now, Britain and America have done this, particularly America, I think. Uh, Britain does the more media side of it. Uh, they've been thought of as likely lads to, uh, to face the enemy of the moment, Russia or Islam or whatever it may be. Uh, you know, but uh, after the war, uh, there is a, is a big problem coming down the pipe because this Azov battalion is, is a regiment within the Ukrainian armed forces, and yet it contains these guys. And there's so much bleeding in and out of this. You just don't know what people's loyalties are. Uh, this, there's, and again, you've got problems with neo-Nazism in all the region, you know, but what's going on here in Ukraine is you've actually got a core of people, OK, the low tens of thousands of men, but more in veterans in the national corps, who are there ready to, to seize the reins of a new Europe. You know, just, just what Putin is accused of doing, trying to make a new world order with Russia in charge. These guys want that, but they want it centred on the Ukraine and neighbouring countries. And they have a sort of neo-pagan vision uh, that, that, that this is this is going to be a renaissance of European civilization.
1: Yeah, OK, so let's uh, put Marco's uh, comments back on screen for a second. Of course, the other allegation was that we have a pro-Putin stance. And so I'm going to say, is it is that what we have or is it that we're... Uh, you know, providing evidence that Putin's actions were forced by our government and those in the United States and the EU. Is that the first point? Uh, well, that's
0: certainly a point, Mark, but the, the other key point is, which is more dangerous, the fact that we live in a country where our government is lying and helping to foment these wars overseas? Or is it Putin who's reacting to these wars? As somebody living in UK, to me, it's very clear if we've got a government that is lying and involved with criminality, which involves wars and munitions and Weapons overseas. We
1: need to deal with them first. Yeah. Okay. And uh, but I have to say that it's the hu- the sorry the hypocrisy of this that really grabs me, uh, Brian. Because you know w- let's let's set aside Iraq, Kosovo, Libya, and Syria for a second, and let's look at where Boris is today. Um, so Boris is off to the Middle East. He's uh, meeting with leaders, so-called, in Abu Dhabi and in Riyadh. So he's in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia today for talks about energy. Why is he there for talks about energy? Well, of course, he's there for talks about energy because of the sanctions that the UK has placed on Russia, uh, and therefore we don't have access or we're denying ourselves access to Russian oil and gas. Uh, so he's meeting uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed in the uh, United Arab Emirates, that he did that this morning, and then he's heading off to meet uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman this afternoon. Um, and they're discussing the importance of allies working together to increase the diplomatic and economic pressure on President Putin's uh, regime and minimize the global fallout from the conflict, is what they're saying. Okay, well, that's all very well, but let's remember for a second the forgotten war. And now this article was from 2018. Yemen civil war, the facts about the world's forgotten war. So this war was forgotten in 2018 already. It had been going on for quite some time. It hasn't stopped, it's still going on. People being killed in their thousands, in their tens of thousands, civilians being killed in their thousands, in their tens of thousands, and who by? By United Arab Emirates and by Saudi Arabia, the country that we're now going over to beg to produce more oil and gas on our behalf. And not a single criticism, not a single sanction, not a single issue with what they have done over the years. Uh, sorry, Brian, just before you human rights watch here, uh, if, you, if you have a look at uh, Yemen events in 2019, but a whole host of other stuff that they're talking about. Uh, they're talking about um, uh, you know, the, the numbers of civilians, tens of thousands of civilians being killed uh, and so on. So um, it's the it's hypocrisy here that really sort of grabs me on this. And just as a final uh, comment on this, uh, it seems to me that um, it's it's pretty clear that we've no right to criticize another country or another head of state for whatever it is they're doing uh, when we have done worse in the past and if we were ta- if we were taking this from a from the moral high ground where we had uh, uh, been promoting peace uh, over the last 40 50 70 80 years since the end of the second world war then maybe we would be in a position to criticise, but we are in no position to criticise whatsoever.
0: Rank hypocrisy, Mike, and I just wanted to add that with regards to Yemen. Remember, of course, that many of the children in Yemen uh, or the people in Yemen killed would have been killed with British and Western munitions because this is what always happens. The moment the wars start, the profits start for the pr- the uh, producers of those weapon systems, we see exactly the same thing in Ukraine. So the West stands on the world stage with a holier than thou uh, uh, status. or well, that's what they try and claim. Whereas, um, what do we see happening worse than
1: <laughs> being driven by yeah. us and our military We're... industrial complex? That's basically what's going on. We're
0: lost for words. Aren't yes. We?
1: So Alex, uh, let's move on to uh, Jericho sky then. Sorry
2: the regular military veterans who has joined this Ukrainian Foreign Legion, which uh, has got Americans in the lead and Brits very high up in second place. Uh, And in extra time, we'll be playing a much more expletive-ridden equivalent of this from an even more spooked-out member of the Foreign Legion, in fact, one who's trying to run away. Uh, This man is still at his post with the Foreign Legion, Jericho Sky. He's talking to CNN while under not direct fire, but he's being bombarded somewhere near him. And you can hear the fear in his voice as he realizes that U.S. air cover, uh, even through local proxies, is not going to apply in this case, unlike uh, very many other conflicts in which the Americans have been involved first or second hand since the end of the Second World War.
3: The U.S. State Department issued a warning uh, two people, just like you, warning of the significant risk there—the risk of capture or even death—and they said the U.S. is not in a position to provide assistance. As you hear that, what goes through your mind, and, and are you afraid at all? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. There's, of course, there's like a part of uh, part of me that definitely doesn't want to get captured. I think that would probably be the worst thing. You know, death would be the worst for my family. For me personally, I don't know, death. it's it's kind of simple. Um, and yeah, I knew what I was getting into. This is a war zone. And just as we're on the phone now, bombs are dropping around us outside. Um, and nobody wants to get airstriked, but it would be a pretty quick way to go. Um, my biggest thing is just, you know, my mother's already lost a child, so I don't want her to have to go through that again. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know if I fully answered your question. How long are you prepared? How long are you prepared to be there? And and if you have to run because of your safety, that's most important, but just curious. Yeah, so if we ever have to retreat, it's gonna be a strategic retreat. It's gonna just be able to go back and uh, rearm and
2: uh, resupply. And then we're gonna go back out. Uh, We're gonna be here until we win. So yes, I don't think he's exaggerating the threat of what happens if, particularly, Russian Caucasus or uh, Russian Tatar troops get hold of him. Uh, Russian, all the Chechens on the Russian side, and that was the same in Afghanistan. They knew how to tell the difference between a contractnik and, and a and a conscripti, uh, and he would be treated as a as a contractnik as a mercenary. So uh, the fear is something I haven't heard before, but you know that's that's what you get for joining up. I think in this case. Um, a Russian Orthodox church in Oxford has been vandalised and desecrated, and this has been carried by very few people. It's the Church of Saint Nicholas the Wonderworker in Oxford. The rector, Archpriest Stephen Platt, has uh, posted these pictures of the uh, trashing of relics, and uh, it's been reported that a collection box had been thieved. Uh, which was destined for refugees from the Ukraine. But of course, these would be the wrong refugees from the Ukraine. But that money has now been pilfered. I suspect that this might not just be uh, a regular trashing by people who've been hit up by the media. There may be a a more targeted aim here, because here in the Netherlands, we've already seen the Russian Orthodox Church in Amsterdam uh, break off its ties with the Moscow patriarchy. Uh, as a way of avoiding being targeted really. And of course, the Russian there's a two or three year backstory of the Russian and Ukrainian Orthodox Church basically falling out of fellowship with each other with alleged Western meddling being at the root of that. Um, just to wrap up from me on here, uh, the quotation uh, by Arthur Ponsonby, an interwar British statesman is probably rightly attributed to him not the 10 points but the quotation at the top which people will recognize when war is declared truth is the first casualty but I thought this was a more of an intellectual meme worth considering because somebody else not Ponsonby has supplied the 10 commandments of war propaganda, and I'm afraid we tick all 10 boxes for hypocrisy. The propaganda we're told is, we don't want war. Only the opposite party's guilty. The enemy is the face of the devil. We defend a noble cause, not our own interest. The enemy is systematically cruel. Our mishaps are involuntary. The enemy uses forbidden weapons. We suffer small losses. Those of the enemy are enormous. Artists and intellectuals back our cause. Our cause is sacred, and all who doubt our propaganda are traitors. Very much George Orwell's experience in the artist's regiment in uh, the Spanish Civil War as well.
1: Yes. Okay. Brilliant. Uh, well, w- uh, one more from you, Alex, Sarah, thank you.
2: Yes, how could I have forgotten? Um, Bernard-Henri Lévy has been the effective runner of uh, French foreign policy since 1979, and here he's turned up ghoul-like in yet another war zone. He's uh, proudly parading the streets of Odessa, which is about to become an enclave or, or pocket of Ukrainian support, here with the leader of the IDAR battalion, who has another one of these uh, nice um, allegiances. I think that's a trizub patch on the the... the uh, which is the trident regiment of, of far-right forces on the uh, the uniform of the man right next to him. Uh, but there he is having a nice grin. And if you tap that again, you will see uh, one lady from one of the Western Balkan countries, Arnesa Ulyushmiti Kustura, Uh, jokes uh, that, uh, having seen this. May Bernard-Henri Levy pose in your rubble is a Balkan curse I would not wish upon my even my worst enemy let alone Ukraine. Uh, Levy's uh, war tourism in the past took him to the following wars all of which his side lost. Yugoslavia early 90s, Kosovo late 90s, Afghanistan 2000, South Ossetia 2008, Libya 2011, Syria 2013, Ukraine 2014 during the last push there and Afghanistan in August 2020, where he flew into Panjshir to support uh, Masouda the Younger against the Taliban. Not an excellent track record, but he does love touring the war zones with the uh, the, the tooled-up gentlemen.
1: Yes. Um, okay, brilliant. Thank you. Let's move on. And, uh, well, what have we got going on here? Well, we have uh, exercises in the Arctic, uh, because, of course, Russia is uh, the big enemy there as well, and uh, Russia is going to uh, come from the Arctic and uh, kill us all in our beds.
0: Well, this is putting pressure on the other flank, Mike. So if you look at this, what is this doing? It's the largest exercise in 30 years, I believe. Yes. It's designed to put additional stress on Russia at a very delicate time.
1: Yes. So uh, the British government extremely excited that uh, HMS Prince of Wales, the aircraft carrier, has taken its place at the center of one of the most powerful naval task forces in the world at the start of the largest Arctic exercise for 30 years. Uh, Prince of Wales, which is currently serving as NATO's command ship, has sailed north to, uh, to the Arctic for exercise cold response. And this is uh, some NATO footage on screen at the moment from uh, at least promoting exercise cold response 2022. This is a month month long, te- long test of Allied forces, which will see 30,000 troops from 27 nations operate together. Uh, so here's what Ben Wallace had to say. The Arctic is becoming an area of increasing military competition. Uh, and the security of the region is directly linked to our national security. So uh, around 900 uh, Royal Marines have been deployed uh, in the Arctic Circle since January in preparation for the exercises, sharpening their expertise in operating in the freezing conditions. And then while uh, HMS, uh, sorry, I've got the HMS Queen Elizabeth graphic on on screen there. So uh, while uh, Prince Wales is uh, working on cold response, Queen Elizabeth is carrying out vital training and exercises in the waters close to the UK to keep her ready for operations anywhere in the world. So uh, that's good, Brian.
0: Yeah, but I don't believe it because I I don't believe that the capability is there in either of these ships. Mike, and of course, we've already talked about the pitiful state of the Royal Navy at the moment.
1: Um, okay, so then we've got the Joint Expeditionary Force. Not many people know what that is, but let's put uh, Boris on screen here because uh, he was meeting with the uh, Prime Minister of uh, of uh, pre- sorry, the president of Finland, uh, Sauli uh at Downing Street yesterday to discuss the ruthless attack by Russia on innocent Ukrainian people. Uh, and they discussed their concerns uh, around Ukraine. They talked about sovereign countries and so on, just the usual rhetoric. Uh, uh, sorry, before
0: it goes, Mike. I I first time I've seen that picture in detail, what are we outside a primary school?
1: Yes, it looks like it, doesn't it? Number 10 Downing Street has become a primary school, yeah. apparently, um, and then uh, who else was he meeting? He was meeting the Prime Minister of Sweden, uh, Magdalena Andersson, uh, and this was; these were both following the Joint Expeditionary Force summit, which took place in London yesterday. Uh, and so uh, Boris Johnson told the Swedish uh, Prime Minister that the UK stood in solidarity with our Nordic partners in the face of rising Russian aggression. Uh, and so they agreed that uh, both nations would further strengthen their work together on disinformation, for example. Uh, but anyway, that the summit for the Joint Expeditionary Force uh, was taking place yesterday. There they all are. Aren't they wonderful? Uh, and Boris was meeting these like-minded countries. Uh, and this is not NATO. This is Joint Expeditionary Force. So this is 10 Northern European countries led by the United Kingdom. Uh, it was established in 2012 as what they called a high readiness force focused on the high north, North Atlantic and Baltic Sea regions. It's got Britain, Finland, Estonia, Iceland, Denmark, Latvia, Lithuania, Norway, Netherlands and Sweden. Uh, and some of the Joint Expeditionary Force member countries are not in the EU. Some of them are in the EU, but not in NATO. Uh, and uh, they, uh, nine of the 10 countries have been supplying weapons to Ukraine's defence forces in the last couple of weeks. Uh, And uh, so the biggest, (coughs) excuse me, the single biggest difference they say between the two uh, alliances, that's the Joint Expeditionary Force and NATO, is the Joint Expeditionary Force member states don't need consensus in order to uh, deploy troops. Um, So uh, the Economist was quoting an unnamed British officer recently uh, saying that the JEF can act uh, when NATO is thinking. Um, So, uh, but we haven't really seen it act as yet. But nonetheless, uh, the propaganda is uh, on full uh, steam. So a little
0: private army there out of control of NATO, but that can act when who decides who, who's in control of this little...
1: Well, they, they view it as being uh, a what they call a potential first responder. Um, yeah. So we'll see uh, how much it first responds. But nonetheless, uh, just to let everybody know that that exists. Now, at the weekend, uh, Micheál Martin, the uh, Taoiseach in Ireland, was uh, on... Uh, Sophie Raworth's programme on the BBC. Um, So I just want to show a little clip from this and then I want to get Alex's brief thoughts on on what he has to say here. You need just listen carefully to the language that's being used.
4: Ireland has been (coughs) neutral in military terms since the 1930s. You're not a member of NATO. Um, It does mean that you are helping to provide stuff to Ukraine, but it is non-lethal equipment. It is things like helmets. At a time when we see maternity hospitals being bombed, cities almost being razed to the ground, does that not feel immoral?
5: Well, we're not politically neutral and we're not morally um, neutral. Uh, and but and, uh, yeah, but know. our military neutrality as part of the EU has not hindered or held back anything in it terms of you know the European Union response.
4: But it has meant that you're not providing what President Zelensky is calling for over and over again, which yeah. is arms and
5: weapons. Well, it does mean that in terms of the 500 million deployment of, of funds to to Ukraine, 450 million of which is lethal. Now we're not part of that. We're part of the 50 million that's non-lethal, uh, but uh, we've paid our full per capita share. Uh, as a member state of the European Union towards that. no, military neutrality, we are military neutral insofar as we're not part of NATO. Uh, my view right now is our focus is, and, and the people who are united on this, is to make sure that there's a speedy response from the European Union to all of the issues that, 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 that require such a speedy response. We will have to reflect on this military neutrality position uh, more generally, uh, and there, you know, we've had a strong nuclear non-proliferation stance, and so on. But Have in, in the middle, time of to reflect but more well, generally, well, no, I mean, this is
4: what they need now, isn't well, it? Well, they uh, need the arms. Yeah, but anything we're yeah, we're not a
5: military power. We're not, uh, you, you know, in, in that sense. Uh, what Ireland does best is on the humanitarian side and on the peacekeeping side. We, we've been one of the longest states involved in peacekeeping all over the world. That those are our strengths. Uh, We're not the European Union. We've evolved our security and defence policy within the European context and the European uh, common security and defence framework. Uh, So we're we're partners for peace with NATO. We're uh, members um, of PESCO and so on like that. So we do into joint things. But the bottom line now, we need to keep a unified focus within Ireland on the Ukrainian situation and what we do best. One cannot, in the middle of a crisis, change a long-held policy overnight.
1: so you're not moral unless you're pumping in the weapons into well, that young lady. Well, that that's true. But, Alec, but Alex, a number of points there. First of all, they are part of the EU defence infrastructure, they're part of PESCO and so on. That doesn't affect their neutrality is what he's implying. That neutrality equals NATO is what he's saying. And so the fact that they're not part of NATO means that they're still neutral, but they're not neutral at all. They gave uh, money towards the, uh, the, the 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 pot of money that went to pay for Weapons and so on to Ukraine, and he's implying that 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 their their euro notes somehow got were only spent on non-lethal uh, aid to Ukraine, and somehow they didn't spend a single euro on lethal aid. Um, but the, the key thing there, in my opinion, was he said we've got to reflect on our ne- neutrality, and and so you take all those into into account, Alex. Basically, we have a country which is no longer it is he has admitted that they are no longer neutral. Uh, but they're going to have to reflect on that a little bit before they make it an official announcement.
2: Well, it's been said in the Erochters, hasn't it, that uh, Ireland no longer believes in the outdated. And it was stronger than that. Uh, make no mistake, uh, Ireland wants nothing to do with the outdated idea of sovereignty, said one of the ministers of, <clears throat> I think it was just under the previous um, who, before he became the Tormister. But that this is a radical departure you know, and I think that was Sophie Rowath, wasn't it, Interviewing, yes. she ought to, even though she's of the younger generation, she ought to have the BBC basic guide to Ireland, right? This, this is not rocket science to know why Ireland is neutral. And it's interesting that the protestation was, as you say, but, but we do provide the, uh, uh, the explosives and, the, and the, the guns, but that goes via um, EU channels, and that, but that's not good enough. And yes, uh, reflect is, of course, code, just like a conversation. Uh, for we have decided to do this but the plebs aren't on board yet because of their pesky history knowledge and their pesky constitutionalism. Uh, But equally astonishing is Sophie Raworth's comeback. There's no time to reflect. It's at times like this that I really think that NATO is now little more than a shakedown. It's a moral blackmail and it's a protection racket. Uh, You've got to be with us. You've got to do what the man on telly says. Otherwise, you're bad people and uh, uh, nice little country you've got here. Shame if anything were to happen to it. Uh, The same thumbscrews are being put on uh, Nynister in Finland uh, and the Swedes and the Austrians. So it's ironic, isn't it? Because we started this news by saying uh, Zelensky has for the time being rejected Swedish or Austrian-like status. One could indeed say Irish-like status, uh, i.e. membership of the EU, but not of NATO. Uh, But even that, uh, if you flick the switch, can become de facto a member of a Western military alliance.
1: Yes, indeed, because NATO is, after all, uh, one of the key pillars of uh, European Defence Union. So anyway, let's uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, uh, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. And there are options to help us out there. Uh, if you'd like to share any of our material that you find on the various platforms, that would be fantastic. Or you could uh, perhaps uh, support us via the uh, UK Column shop, which is at shop.ukcolumn.org.
0: Okay, thanks for that, Mike. Well, I'm just going to add that uh, on uh, Saturday, 19th of March, 12 p.m., uh, we've got a worldwide rally for freedom occurring. It is not over yet. It certainly isn't. We'd just like to say a big thank you to Fiona. We were hoping to be able to speak to her for today's news. I wasn't able to do that, so apologies, Fiona, but we'll see whether we can get a clip for Friday. But a lot of work going on in order to bring people together Um, for very important events like this. And of course, the more peaceful they are, the more people that are there, the more powerful they are. And uh, we need people to stand up and be counted. And look on the right of the uh, poster there, you can see all the other um, locations listed, Edinburgh, Blackburn, Lanx, Liverpool, Hull, Leeds, uh, Bristol, Totnes, Truro. So right the way across the country, and of course, it takes a lot of effort to do this. Now, we've covered a lot of uh, material on today's news, quite rightly to do with the situation in Ukraine, because this is what is dominating uh, the media at all levels. It, it's almost as though local reporting has disappeared. If you're living in UK, you're only allowed to think Ukraine at the moment. And this, of course, is propaganda in itself is extremely dangerous because under the surface, we've got many, many important things happening. So I'd like to bring Debbie Evans in on screen with us because uh, Debbie, you've been spending a lot of time, a lot of time uh, over recent days, keeping track of what's happening with uh, matters to do with vaccinations and vaccine adverse effects. And uh, one of the key places that you've been interacting with, of course, has been the MHRA. So let's uh, just uh, tell the audience straight off a little bit about the board meeting that you've been trying to engage with. And then we'll have a look in some detail at the MHRA's own board meeting video.
6: Well, good afternoon. And and, uh, yes, thank you, Brian. Well, as everybody will know that I did actually register for the board meeting that was cancelled. However, I received a ticket to tell me that it was back on again. So I've been in very regular communications with CEO June Rain's office. um, And I received I have received replies back as a as a result of that their February 22 board meeting uh, was put up on YouTube on Monday. Uh, yes, Monday it was, and I have gone through it uh, with a fine tooth comb. And I think you're about to show us some of the things that I found out. But I would implore everybody, please watch the MHRA board meetings. They are very, very revealing for a number of reasons.
0: Debbie, that's absolutely the uh, key point because, of course, the MHRA is in control of all the data reporting on vaccine adverse reactions and deaths, and what we have been saying is that of course there's no still no evidence from the MHRA to demonstrate that the vaccines are safe but let's get some information about the board meeting this is the big advert you can now see on YouTube if you go to look at their board meeting uh, held in public it says and this is for the 15th February 2022. Uh, This is the man chairing the meeting Stephen Lightfoot Uh, He's certainly a lightweight because if you listen to him, he sounds like a primary school uh, head teacher uh, talking to children and more of that in due course. But let's remind people that despite one and a half million vaccine adverse reactions and over 2,000 deaths, that's the data to the 2nd of March 2022, the MHRA's failed to produce a quantitative vaccine risk assessment. And we also know that it has not conducted an investigation into the vaccines as is routine with other pharmaceutical products. And just before I move on, Debbie, let's re-emphasize the point. You pinned the MHRA down over this because you determined that they were prepared to carry out an investigation into a single death with another product, but they've not carried out an investigation into the vaccine deaths.
6: No, they haven't. And that was my question for the board meeting that was meant to be held in public yesterday. Whether or not it was held in private, I don't know. Uh, But I did receive an email from the CEO's office last night to say that although they had promised me an answer to my question, referring to that one case of um, doxycycline death and where were where was the investigation into the over 2000 deaths and over one and a half million serious adverse um, effects. They said that they were ever so sorry, they hadn't been able to meet their own deadline of giving me a reply by yesterday. But I would receive a reply this week. So watch this space.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Right. Well, let's bring the board meeting back on screen. Um, We'll bring in the chairman again because people need to understand who this man is because he holds a lot of responsibility. Uh, But of course, um, although the MHRA is responsible for public health and safety, with respect to vaccines, um, their work is unchecked by the UK public. Now, what am I talking about here? Well, if you look down at the bottom of this screen, bottom left-hand corner is very small, but it says 69 people has viewed this uh, board meeting. And uh, this is really very sad because, of course, if you do watch the board meeting, you're going to understand exactly what these people are doing. So when people say to the UK column, yes, but what can we do? We're going to say to you, get onto YouTube, watch the full two hours plus of this MHRA board meeting, and we feel that you will be as astonished and shocked as we are at the sheer incompetence of these individuals who apparently hold the responsibility for our safety. Now, Debbie, you've done a lot of work looking at the latest uh, board meeting, which is up on uh, YouTube, and uh, you've date stamped it, we're going to try and get that up as an article on the UK column website. But if we bring some of the things up on screen here, uh, I'll bring you back on just a comment. But uh, at the start of it, you particularly picked out that Stephen Lightfoot suddenly appears to be uncomfortable. And we think this is due to the number of viewers that have seen previous board meetings as a result of the uh, UK column focus. Uh, you've discovered that they're talking about transforming themselves to what they say is a one-agency organization. Um, at eight minutes, uh, we've got uh, more on uh, Novavax, which they say is a more traditional form of vaccine. You said tongue-in-cheek, uh, no, it isn't. At nine minutes, they're talking about safety, and they're particularly trying to reassure us that uh, Everything is fine with regard to pregnant women. At 10.29, they're discussing a new criminal enforcement agency. And I thought this was interesting, Mike, because we see the government pushing down in other areas. Uh, Here we've got criminal enforcement by the MHRA, maybe an oxymoron. And at 11.40, uh, we've got one of the ladies talking of risks and benefits of medicines and how they will hear the patients Uh, perception of risk and benefit. Uh, Debbie, before we go on to look at a few more of these uh, key timestamps that you picked up, out of one agency organisation and pregnancy, what do you think is the key issue on screen at the moment?
6: Uh, Their transformation into a global regulator is what I believe. Um, They want to be top of the tree, um, a sovereign regulator, I believe.
0: They want to be a sovereign regulator. We we still don't know what that is and uh, a lot of questions to be asked, but we don't get a good feel about it because they can't protect the health of the UK public, but now they're going to operate um, as a sovereign system globally. Let's go on and have a look at some of the other timestamps you picked up. Um, June Rain was answering a question about supporting the developing world. And you quite rightly picked up that while they can't manage what they're doing in UK, they need more information from Nigeria, Ethiopia, Ghana, South Africa and Kenya to pick up on signal detection. So they can't talk about vaccine safety, it would appear, uh, unless they get this extra data from out of Africa. Uh, We've got a question again about criminal enforcement. And... um, somebody got quite excited here because they started to talk about wicked crime and you flagged up operation Pangea and I'll bring in the last one June rain uh, minute 18 was talking again about the detection of signals Uh, but apparently we need this because there's going to be future pandemics so Debbie we've got an interesting cocktail apparently they don't know enough about the vaccine adverse effects and we need to be working in Africa. They regard themselves as the equivalent of a, a crime detection agency, uh, but they're also saying future pandemics to come.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And future pandemics is mentioned more than once in that board meeting. And uh, I, I was quite shocked, actually, to go and look at Operation Pangaea because it was some um, collaboration with Interpol and it was only done in 2019. And she talks about, um, you know, malaria coming to these shores and that she was worried about, you know, the Ebola case that was in the UK a few weeks ago. So they're very clearly looking at future pandemics, how quickly they can roll out these new medications and what they can do to protect the British public. I say protect in inverted commas because I believe this is all a big surveillance. It's all a big surveillance um, agenda from what I can see.
0: Okay, thank you for that. we we'll just do one more slide here. So if we bring this one on screen at minute 24, they're on to managing public money. They're very worried about money at the moment because they've had some uh, money um, flows cut off recently. Here's June Rain declaring that patients who participate in trials uh, rarely get to hear the results. How can that be? You, you take part in a trial but you never know what it was about.
1: Maybe because they're dead.
0: Uh, well, that's a possibility. Uh, But part of it was that uh, being on trial is a great place to be. You don't know what the drugs are going to do to you, but it's a great place to be. Minute 31, here is more dialogue that we're still in a pandemic. And if that's not bad enough, be frightened because the next pandemic is to come. And lastly, the chairman himself talking about a two-year delivery plan. And here's discussion about this business that the MHRA is going to be a sovereign regulator. Um, Debbie, before we show video clips to our audience today, it's very difficult to know what these people are and what's actually going through their heads. They have immense power, but we don't really know what their agenda is, or do we? Well,
6: I I think think we do, actually. I think their agenda is uh, not to to be the global leader you know this is all about one agency transformation this is about the mhra governing the the, the pharmaceutical world the genomic pipelines the life sciences of, of the united kingdom and beyond and quite clearly they're looking at sovereign regulation which from what i can believe is financial sustainability mixed in with keeping up with the latest medical advances and the medical technology and certainly from the board meeting you can see a lot of mentions of biological um, medications coming down the line so that word biological figures very heavily too this is all about genomic medicine precision medicine for the future medicines as we know them have disappeared they've gone they're all going to be reinvented into new in my opinion, far more toxic, poisonous, untested medications.
0: Toby, thank you for that. And of course, while those agendas are the real agendas going on, or certainly that's what our research shows, how does the MHRA talk to the public? Well, they talk to the public as if they are primary school children. So we've got the first of two clips here. I'm just going to say to people, you'll understand the bulk of the uh, video clip very clearly. Uh, and easily but watch the first whatever it is 20 seconds and listen to what the chairman is saying because what he's effectively saying is don't worry we work with the pharmaceutical industry uh, but we've got a bit of a firewall up to make sure that we are independent listen to this clip
7: and I think actually something that's, that's probably important for members of the public again is the fact now we've separated the advice being in the innovation group, mm-hmm. that's then got a firewall with the regulatory group in terms of making the decisions. Correct. So I, I think actually we've got a very robust way of actually handling this from a conflict of interest point of view. Indeed, I agree. So that's, that's great. OK, Rachel, back to you.
4: Yeah, thank you. So the next question is about uh, Covid vaccinations and the questioner says, that they have many friends, family and work colleagues who have been adversely affected by vaccinations um, and many people know of others who have suffered. Um, there are many stories about sports people collapsing in front of the public and women experiencing miscarriages have increased dramatically. Can you clearly explain how all these adverse reactions, as well as linked vaccine deaths, are being investigated and how will the public receive the findings of these investigations.
7: Okay, a whole series of questions in that. Um, Alison, over to you.
4: So, thank you very much for for the question. Um, I think I have a slide actually, and I wanted to start by walking you through the journey of a yellow card. So if we could go into, uh, so when your yellow card um, comes from the reporter, so it could be a healthcare professional, it could be a patient, and we receive those reports in different ways, as I've tried to illustrate there. It could be via your phone, it can still be via a buyer paper report, or it could indeed be via the website. And when each and every report comes in, it's stored, if you go to the next please, onto our, our system and then it's analysed very, very carefully. So we look at each and every report we, we assess it, we compare it against what's known in our database if you move on. We analyse via a number of different analytical procedures. Is this something we expected? Is this something in our product information? Is this more than we would expect to happen under a normal situation? What is our baseline reporting? If we're particularly concerned about a particular adverse event that we received we will do a very careful assessment of that and then if we go next please we will then discuss with colleagues, discuss with our expert committees, go and seek external uh, our independent advice through our Commission on Human Medicines but also other expert advisory groups and once we've reached our conclusion and that advice has been received we will then take regulatory action next please and that may be communicated through a number of routes either through our drug safety update bulletins but also through a number of other mechanisms that we have to share this advice and share the conclusions of our assessment. So I just wanted to illustrate really the process that each and every card goes, every report that we received goes through. So if we can um, bring that down and I'll talk more specifically about the question itself.
0: So Debbie, if we can just pop you back on screen, Um, you've listened to that clip many times. I've listened to it a couple of times now. Clearly she's talking to children, but of course, what does she not do? She does not explain Uh, what investigation they've carried out into the adverse reactions and the deaths, nor does she put up any evidence to show that they've carried out an investigation or any evidence that there is no risk from these vaccinations. Uh, Just give us very briefly your thoughts on that uh, disgraceful presentation.
6: I just thought she was completely belligerent. It was like, oh, do I really have to go through this? Um, next slide: treating the audience like children, treating as though we don't want to know what the investigation. We want to know the specifics. So for me, she was just belligerent, and she appeared to be grumpy headmistress.
1: Uh, but Debbie, uh, that video was very clearly edited. There was there was overdubbing, audio overdubbing on that. Uh, You could hear it very clearly, you'd hear hear that uh, during the live stream, she had quite an echoing microphone, and then suddenly it switched to a recording of some audio that was done in a much uh, more uh, controlled environment. So there was no echo in it. So uh, I wonder what the words were that she was covering up.
6: Uh, That's a very good point, Mike, and it is one that I had picked up to my ear, I was thinking, has this been edited or is this an audio, because they kept going on about audio problems, but I agree with you, and all through the meeting, you can hear slight changes where they have edited it, now this is meant to be a live meeting, quite quite clearly it isn't, and the normal MHRA running order for the, the meetings are two and a half hours. And this was two hours, eight minutes, I think, uh, just less than two and a half hours. So I do believe they have edited it, yes.
1: Yes.
0: Right, and the the other thing we need to make clear to our audience was that until the UK column focused on these MHRA board meetings, thanks to your efforts, your research efforts, Debbie, uh, they were only getting a few hundred views. But the last board meeting that went up it was up into the thousands as a result of the UK column focus. Now, suddenly we can see these people getting very nervous and oh, dear, they're having technical problems and oh, dear, they need to edit their board meetings. But let's just go on to the second part of the clip. Same lady speaking immediately after the children's presentation. And let's hear what she says um, to to the audience.
4: And I just wanted to start by saying that We need to remember that since the vaccination campaign started, over 135 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines in the UK have been administered. And vaccination remains the single most effective way to reduce deaths and severe illness from COVID-19. It's estimated it saved tens of thousands of lives, not only in the UK but globally, and even more hospitalisations have been avoided. But it's really important to reassure anybody who might be watching, but the general public, that any suspected adverse events are identified very quickly, and that's because at the start of the vaccination campaign, we launched a very comprehensive safety monitoring strategy for the COVID-19 vaccines, and that's been published online on our website, and um, you can look at it there in much more detail. But just to emphasise that the Strategy Incorporates a number of different approaches and methodologies um, to be as comprehensive as possible and to, as I said, to understand is this particular event something that is happening more frequently than we would expect under normal circumstances. And every week we publish a report on adverse events um, that we've seen and we've received with the COVID-19 vaccines. That's a very comprehensive report. And this extensive real-world experience has demonstrated these vaccines are safe and effective to use. To, uh, uh, to use, One last point I really want to emphasise is um, that multiple epidemiological studies as well as an analysis of our yellow card data have demonstrated there is no increased risk of miscarriage following vaccination and there is no evidence of increased birth or pregnancy outcomes either, it's very important. emphasise that and we have a very extensive section um, within this weekly report describing the safety of vaccines in pregnancy but also in breastfeeding. So lastly, Chair, just to say that safety is of paramount importance to the and I would like to reassure each and everyone that we take every report of a suspected adverse drug reaction, uh, vaccine reaction in this case, but also a drug reaction or a device reaction very seriously and we continue to monitor the COVID-19 vaccines very closely. Thank okay,
7: you. well th- well, thank you Alison, I think that demonstrates a very systematic approach, I Absolutely. think is what you're describing. Detailed analysis of each individual uh, event being reported, there's a transparency mm-hmm. with the publication on, on, the, on the website mm-hmm. and the overall conclusion is that the benefit risk is very of the vaccines of covid is very much in the favor of benefit absolutely so therefore you know we would ra- regard them safe and effective to use which is why they've been used on so many hundreds of millions of people so around the world okay thank you for that so
1: So Brian, the first thing there is, we would regard them as safe. It's not a definitive statement. Correct. They are safe and effective. It is, we would regard them as safe and effective. So they're clearly not, they're wanting to to divert away from making but any I think they fri- can be held
0: to. I think these people are very frightened. Why are they becoming frightened? Not that anybody's threatening, but they know that the public is now watching them. So I'm gonna say once again, if you want to be taking action, do something simple, watch a video, clock up on that YouTube. Let's listen just to just under a one minute uh, response from another specialist talking about uh, dangers, um, ab- ab- about pregnancy dangers. So let's listen to Dr. Jessica Rose talking in this very brief clip. But of course, these are the sorts of experts that the MHRA are never going to engage with
3: well we we kind of do know um there's a study that was published that was meant to and everyone 's basing their you know uh, propositions of safety for pregnant women in yeah. the New England Journal of medicine yeah. um, this study was was meant to show how safe these products are for pregnant women however uh, i 'll call him or her a civilian mathematician pointed out that, that they made a little bit of a mistake. Uh, if, you, if you noticed that the denominator, <laughs> uh, if, if you change the denominator to what it should have been, which would have excluded the 700 out of 837 women that were in the third trimester,
7: exactly, you
3: would do your calculation and find out that 82% of the women in the study no were lost their baby and they were in their first or second trimester and um... they had to add that to their paper but you know where they put it they put it in the appendix where nobody ever looks and they did not change the conclusion of the paper this is what we're doing with people this is this is what's happening
0: so this is the number vid if you are a professional with a completely different view on the safety of vaccines uh, you are not going to be heard meanwhile the mhra waffle and talk to the uk public as if they're children if you want to do something about it watch the uh, uh watch the video and get the number counter uh, to be rising um, debbie we're watching the clock so i'm just going to move on through these two slides but you'd flagged up that if we were watching the MHRA, we needed to be really sure what was happening because we got the MHRA here alongside the National Institute for Biological Standards Board and the Clinical Practice Research Data Link. And uh, this Venn diagram focuses roughly what's going on. And if we have a look in at the center where they fuse, I'm going to use that deliberately for you, Mike. Uh, What are they talking about? World leading collaborative developments. So are we dealing in health for UK or are we dealing with something much deeper? It certainly seems to me it's much deeper. Um, Debbie, stay with us because we'll bring you back in in just a minute. Um, We're gonna bring um, Alex. Alex.
1: Yes, Alex, let's talk about cross-examining a GP in a COVID vaccination hearing.
0: We will
2: indeed. And we will skip all the other slides in the rest of the segment from me and go straight back to Debbie after this particular item. And also, before I forget to say it, a sovereign regulator in legal terms, that would be an almighty lawgiver or a legislator with no checks and balances and no separation of powers. It's just a nice British way of saying the same thing. The Open Justice Court of Protection Project is a blog uh, of and for lawyers who are concerned that the Court of Protection, like family courts in other jurisdictions, uh, is a post-2000 invention uh, to remove the jury and the standards uh, of evidence uh, that we're used to in free countries, particularly English-speaking countries. They, uh, uh, They feature here. Now, Francis Hoare was used as the barrister, I think a lot of our viewers will know of his work, um, for a family, uh, for parents more particularly, of a 20-year-old severely handicapped young man. Um, And uh, before people criticize me for using the word handicapped here on the continent, that English word is still common, so uh, you shouldn't slap my wrist for it. and it's particularly what they're doing is the parents are taking the core NHS unit, the Clinical Commissioning Group, which at least in England is the is the remaining bit of the government-funded regular, sorry, um, insurer that buys services in. That CCG is being taken to court by the parents uh, because the Clinical Commissioning Group, which is the, the really core, still public bit of the NHS, allegedly said. Um, In cahoots with a general practitioner, a family doctor or generalist, um, your adult son who hasn't got his own understanding uh, must uh, get jabbed and the core of it is was the GP, the general practitioner, the family doctor actually competent? Well he admitted under unwanted cross-questioning by Mr. Hoare that that wasn't the case. This riled the the Court, the GP and the judge, because the whole point of bringing in family law and now called court of protection for incapacitated adults uh, is to get rid of adversarial and cross-questioning and go to a civil law model where we're all on the same side and we all want the same thing and we all respect each other and don't doubt each other, which is disastrous. So the parents described the best interests assessment made by the GP, which came up with the magic formula, you should jab him, as formulaic. Uh, mr Hoare on the next bit um actually put it to um the uh, sorry that's the next one again uh, mr haw put it actually uh, to the uh, the doctor uh, that he hadn't even done basic stuff like find out that this ma- young man was severely underweight for his age we're going quickly but people can freeze the screen and i very much read re- recommend reading the whole thing Here we see that the government's lawyers, the official solicitor, so this is executive, right, this isn't the judiciary. The executive um, actually confirms uh, that we won't even consider ivermectin because it's not an authorized treatment in Britain. Therefore, it doesn't exist. The only options are be jabbed or not. Pretty bald language. Hoare then uh, puts it to uh, the GP, that's the slide I've mixed up, saying, have you actually even bothered to check that were the vital signs of this this young man are normal and the gp says um ah well i'm terribly sorry i didn't uh, the judge intervenes and says no 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 you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't say these things then on the next bit the general practitioner says i'm a gp I'm supposed to find out what it's in his best interests. Um, I don't know it myself, what's best. Uh, I, I On the next bit, if you t- hit, hit it again, I go by guidance from the Joint Committee on Vaccine. Uh, I forget the last uh, ac- letter of the acronym, the JCVI. People well know this uh, this this, the, this acronym now. That's it. Yes, Vaccines and Paul says, do you agree with the guidance? And he says, um, I'll go by the template. I don't think for myself. Uh, he doesn't think about his oath here. He says the guidance is written by people better educated than I am I'm just I'm just a fully uh, poly- qualified and fully paid doctor. don't 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 believe that I have anything to say. then Hall puts it to him that as in other jurisdictions, the trend in England and Wales for the last few years has been to uh, much more on the side of fully informing the patient and not just go by this reasonable person idea. In other words, trust your doctor idea. Uh, no, you need to give full information, including negative information that's known. And the GP says, That's not in my guidance, I shouldn't inform people of that. Uh, The write-up then says that the problem for both the barrister and the parents is that the court routinely makes decisions based on official guidance and that the system, including the courts, which are supposed to be adversarial and high evidentiary standards, expect no more of a general practitioner or family doctor than faithfully to apply the protocol. This was laid out in previous casework, and if you tap the final bit of this, uh, the write up says that in this case, His Honor Justice Burroughs drew, uh, drew on another decision, or uh, obiter, which is by the by remarks by the judge, saying, We favour guidance, basically. We don't go by evidence or morals, we go by guidance. So the GP in the case, who relies on guidance and applies it faithfully, is in fact uh, an entirely uh, judged by the CCG, the core of the NHS, as an entirely appropriate expert, even though he's just been on the stand saying, I'm no expert, Gov. I just do what I'm told. The write up concludes. A cross-examination, which of course civil law jurisdictions don't have, and the Court of Protection doesn't even want it in England anymore, it can be technically flawless, certainly if it's done by Mr. Hoare, who's brilliant, but it can ultimately fail because those submissions are, I would add, in the absence of a jury, which is a planned absence, simply not compelling to the
7: judge.
0: And I'll say to that, uh, what an incredible state of affairs, because, of course, guidance can be completely wrong. It is just guidance, but now it's been brought into the courts. Debbie, I'm just going to run through these slides. We know we've got more of your material. We'll put that in extra time. Um, But your research, of course, on the NHS um, led you through to the fact that uh, the NHS was operating in a global Uh, capacity through the NHS Confederation. So we got some screenshots here of international health service. And uh, what did this also seem to link up with? Well, we've chosen Wired as this report, but there are a number of places we could go for it. We're on to clinical trials in Ukraine. And uh, of course, we now know that trials have been disrupted Um, But if we look at some of the language here in this report, make no mistake, war is a huge obstacle to medical research. And it's a real pity because apparently the war has upset medical research in Ukraine. And why? Well, if we move on through the article and uh, we highlight a bit here, it says, plus that wobbly healthcare system meant that much of the population, the Ukrainian population, is made up of, quote, treatment naive patients or individuals who haven't yet received any treatment. A trial investigator's dream. This is a very interesting situation. If you haven't come up against medication, would that not mean in the first instance that you're healthy? healthy? yeah. So healthy population, drug companies get in, but oh dear, there's been a nasty war which has upset their little game. And uh, one of the companies that's come to the fore is Enamine, a global supplier of chemical compounds and and reagents necessary for drug discovery. Uh, Debbie, just 10 seconds on this. Um, You've been looking at Enamine and you are not happy with what you're seeing.
6: I'm really not. And uh, I I know that we haven't got much time and I hope that we can explore this in depth. Um, Enamine is a massive chemical company. Now, they are literally the biggest um, that do what they do, which is imagine a box of Lego, and you can't build your house or your car unless you've got the blocks. Enamine builds molecular, molecular building blocks. And without enamine, it means that all the biochemical companies, the pharmaceutical companies, they're stalled, they're disrupted. This is a huge deal in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, the founder, Dr. Andrew Tol- Tolmachev, uh, apologies Alex, he used to work for Pfizer and the lead scientist, Igor Komarov, um, was a Cambridge researcher and has been in fund uh, receipt of NATO research grants. Now this company is indispensable. And with regards to clinical trials at the moment, there are 557 ongoing in Ukraine at the moment. And there's massive disruption because most of the participants have either fled or they're fighting. So this has put a massive, massive, um, I don't know, what would you say? A, a, a block, massive a block. In the Yeah. For the whole of the pharmaceutical company, the genomic industry, the biotech industry, this is much, much bigger than just even even biolabs. This is uh, even bigger than bio.
0: And it appears these companies are simply and cynically using the Ukra- Ukrainian population as, as, a, as laboratory rats. Hmm. We're, going to have to, we're going to have to end there. I think we've got one, one further slide to bring up. Yeah, I just want to
1: end on this, uh, Alex, because uh, I thought this was uh, quite an accurate little meme that's doing the rounds. Uh, so this is the international community. The rules-based international order is on screen at the moment. and We've got uh, uh, North America, Europe. Australia, Japan, New Zealand. Uh, and that's that's about the height of it, Alex. I think that's a fairly accurate representation of uh, of the the matter because, of course, the implication from the Western media is that it's the whole world against Russia. In fact, it's not.
2: Well, you know, to use a Russian phrase, this is the Zolotoy milliard, the golden billion, those who live happy lives. And uh, the whole point about ma- that map is not just cutting down the number of countries to what really the international community means, but it also shows, if you put it back on screen, that if we start to have practical secession or even de jure secession of Australian states, US states, uh, Canadian provinces, or the, the, the defection of further EU member states to the Eastern bloc, you've got even fewer uh countries and even less of a population uh, and the the tub thumping will just disappear into irrelevance
1: yes okay
0: okay that's it so we're going to say to all of our audience today thank you very much for joining us especially if you come in from overseas we're also going to say of course if you subscribe to the uk column for that small uh, monthly amount you can get into extra time And in extra time, we often try and cover material that we didn't have time to cover in the mainstream news. That will be the case today. So that's one of the benefits of joining us and supporting us financially. Ask yourself a simple question. Do you get this quality of reporting from the BBC? I'll leave you to answer that. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye bye.